hard to believe the drama is over. Tragedy struck downtown this morning. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back to Je Nicole, everyone. I'm your host, Lucy, and welcome to the episode. This is part one of a special two-part episode where we will be discussing amphibious operations with a series of authors who contributed to a new book out called On Contested Shores, The Evolving Role of Amphibious Operations in the History of Warfare, published by the US Marine Corps Press. It's a fantastic read and I've posted the link below, so check it out. Today in part one, I'm joined by Tim Heck, a co-editor of the book and artillery officer in the US Marine Corps Reserve and Sue Komarath, a contributing author and a policy advisor who works for the Department of the Navy. Welcome, Tim and Sue, and thanks for joining Je Nicole today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Luz. All right, I guess I'll start with you, Tim. So the book, On Contested Shores, what precipitated the desire to organise the book, gather authors from around the world? Was there a key issue that you wanted to address uh, when you decided on this project? Yeah, so Brett and I put this together because we saw a gap. You know, you you look at, and Brett and I are Marines, so we kind of default to like, what is the Marine Corps doing when we think about things or we frame things because that's been our upbringing. And you look at the Commandant's most recent reading list and there is Merrill Bartlett's Assault from the Sea, which is a collection of essays on amphibious operations. And it's 30 years old. It's fantastic, right? It's great. It's it's the, you know, it's the bar, it's the gold standard, but it is 30 years old. And Brett and I said, there's a lot that's changed. You know, we, we are part of the generation of Marines that didn't see boats, that amphibious things were thing, you know, it, it was a history lesson for us, right? It was Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal and Tarawa and, you know, looking more internationally, right? Gallipoli and, and, and things like that. But it wasn't what we did. We were dirt Marines. We went to Iraq. We went to Afghanistan. But as General Berger starts to shift us back to sea, we saw a bit of a gap. And, and we started this process before uh, General Berger became the commandant, but it was kind of very fortuitous, especially right chapters like Sue's, which are predictive in a way um, of where the, Mar- the U.S. Marine Corps thinks it's going. And so while we didn't want this to be a book by Marines for Marines about Marines, we did we are Marines and we did publish it through the Marines, but we saw it as an opportunity to to look at amphibious operations in a different way. Um, and to fill some of the gap, right? Bartlett's assault from the sea focuses on the amphibious assault, but there's so much more, and that's that's what we wanted to do. Yeah, okay, and that's a a good segue. So, so your chapters titled "The Future Is Amphibious: The Role of Naval Special Warfare in Great Power Competition." And Tim, you kind of hinted at it there, but so in your paper, you talk about this refocusing of U.S. strategy from like terrorism counterinsurgency to great power competition and how this requires a paradigm shift. Can you just discuss that a bit for me? Sure. So um, so actually my by trade, I, I've been an analyst with the Navy for many years. And uh, in that capacity is how I got to know the Naval Special Warfare community uh, through deployments and through working with them over several years. And um, one thing that I've noticed, and so the bulk of my focus, especially being a Middle East specialist has been on counterterrorism. And um, 
what I've noticed and learned over time is that this last generation has been truly been shaped by the events of 9-11 and the conflicts that followed, which are primarily ground-based, you know, focused on tactical uh, non-state actors. And, you know, now when we are talking about, you know, strategically shifting to this global competition, I mean, that is that is night and day from, you know, it's just miles away from the the missions that everybody has been, or the, at least the NSW community has been focused on for the last 20 years. And what that means is, uh, you know, most, we have a whole generation of, you know, active duty military members who have, by contrast with their predecessors, very limited naval experience, uh, amphibious experience, being on ships, you know, just the type of warfare and type of operations they've been engaged with are just a complete departure from the the history of what NSW really is uh, and has been until, you know, the early 21st century. So it's going to take a, a cultural shift inside the organization to come to terms with the fact that you're not, you know, great power competition or strategic competition, I think the name is changing, um, is not going to look like kicking in doors it's not going to look like movies or books that are, you know, that that look like what we're used to seeing from from this community in particular. Yeah, that is um, a good point. And I've heard a lot of commentary where they say for the Marine Corps, they're going back to their roots. You kind of highlight that where, where you have a whole generation of officers that haven't actually served at sea because of the types of uh, operations that the US has been engaged with. But in regards to going back, the Naval Special Warfare going back to its roots, would you be able to give an example from before the 9-11 era of a successful US NSW-led amphibious operation? So the interesting thing is that, so the examples I use in, in the chapter are examples of NSW supporting operations that have strategic value. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily they were, say that they were in the lead. So the examples I provide, some of them are Ernest Will uh, from the late 80s. So we're talking about, you know, using a float forward staging basis to intercept uh, vessels during the Iran-Iraq war and, you know, maintain the flow of ship traffic. So, you know, they they are not the starring role in, in operation like that, but they're pr- providing a very, very important service. Um, you know, another example is both the beginning of the Gulf War 91 and the Iraq War in 2003, when the, you know, the special, sorry, the Naval Special Warfare Community was um, employed to secure uh, critical infrastructure in Iraq, specifically, you know, the, um, the oil facilities right along the water there. So again, important strategically, but not shooting bin Laden in the face. Um, so they're, they're providing a supporting role that has critical strategic value, um, but it, it's, it's just a, it's totally different from what they're known for now. And that, those kinds of operations were the bread and butter of this community for many, many, many years. You've used a couple of examples, kicking down doors, shooting bin Laden in the head. And Tim, you can probably weigh in on this if you reflect back to when you were first beginning your career in the Marine Corps, do you think this will have this restructure, paradigm shift, will have an impact on recruitment for people who have this vision based on counterinsurgency operations and now it's changed? Maybe we'll start with you, Sue, and then jump to you, Tim. I think it could. 
I think I think it could. I mean, so what I what I'm not sure about is because I I'm not a young 18 year old military aged male, uh, but I so I don't know what they're thinking. But I I do think that the modern likely mainstream reference for most people when they think of Navy SEALs or or even the um, the SWIC community, which is lesser known but also part of NSW, is is still the you know zero dark thirty or the those other types of references, um, the action figures and so on. So they might still join, but then realize once it's too late that hey, these are not. This is wait a second. What is this great power competition thing? So so I think over time it might become more apparent that the focus of the military in general is not what it used to be. Um, but what I think is more, maybe more concerning for the, for the near term is the fact that most of the people who are in leadership now, their the bulk of their experience is, is exactly this. It's, it's counterterrorism. It's um, tactical ground-based operations. It's multiple deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, uh, Yemen, places like that. And uh, they're just going to have to be very creative about how they apply that experience against a problem like strategic competition with China and Russia. Yeah. And what about you, Tim? What What are your thoughts of your former Marine Corps self as you were just starting out in your career? What do you think he would think? Where's the lava monster? <laughs> I'm still looking for that guy. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think you're going to see a change. I think Sue nailed it. You're going to see a change. What that change looks like, I don't know. You know, she's talking about Zero Dark Thirty. I'm thinking American Sniper. I'm thinking, terrible as it was, the Hurt Locker, right? Like, this is the image, right? So, you know, I was eight, nine years old when Desert Storm happened. And I remember watching the news every night at dinner and seeing precision guided strikes and all of this. So an eight or nine-year-old kid now is seeing, well, actually, an eight and nine-year-old kid that when Bin Laden was killed is now able to join the military. Um, and so what is his or her perception? I'm I'm curious to see what that's going to do. You know, I think everybody has this, there, there's a bit of an attitude that I went to the last hard class. Um, after me, things got soft, things are different, this kind of old core mentality in some ways. Um, you see it in a variety of communities. Uh, and I, I don't think it's exclusive to the Marines, but change is scary. And so I'm going to hold on to what I know. And look, you know, 19-year-old me that signed the contract didn't know a hell of a lot. My age now, I'm two decades beyond that. I still don't know a hell of a lot. Uh, and I think the the beauty of a project that like this is I could go out and learn. And I hope that the people that we are bringing into the military, men, women, um, certainly, you know, I, I'm looking forward to an officer class that doesn't look like me. Uh, to the extent that it does currently, right? That is predominantly white and male and middle class. Um, and looking for a, for a diversity because I think that's going to be essential for national security. And I know I've drifted, but what they are thinking as they look to the military these days uh, is very curious. But they could, you know, the kid going down to the recruiting station today could very well have that image of the smashed up stealth Blackhawk and, you know, the the rally in front of the White House in 2011 when when it was announced that bin Laden had been killed. That could be their image. I'm still looking for the lava monster, but I'm not disappointed I haven't found him. Uh, and, and I certainly hope that that they get into the military and go, you know, look, maybe this isn't Call of Duty. Maybe this isn't American Sniper, but this is something worthwhile. I guess a lot of the military commentary at the moment focuses a lot on China, 
Then second to that, I guess, Russia and technology, particularly long-range fires, hypersonic, cyber, AI, uh, with military applications. And a lot of military folk argue that future amphibious operations just aren't going to happen. And actually, I was in preparation for this podcast, I was scrolling through Twitter the other day and I saw a comment from Zachary Tyson, an ex-intelligence analyst uh, for the US, and he said, yes, Defence planners need to recognise this and stop overemphasising a fantasy D-Day style amphibious invasion that is very unlikely to happen. So how would you respond to this kind of commentary regarding amphibious operations of the future? We'll start with Tim first and then we'll go over to Sue. I think he's right. You know, as much as it, it you know, again, the, the amphibious history and, and the roots of the Marine Corps, as much as that hurts to think, you know, we're not going to do this again. I, I don't think we are. That said, I think if you looked back about 100 years ago to today, they'd be saying the same thing after Gallipoli. And and clearly, you know, be, being an Aussie, like that's baked into your national identity is that experience. I, I don't think we're going to see it. And I think, again, it goes back to what we wrote the book about. The book is not about the assault. There are assaults in here. The book is about the operations, all types of them. You know, the sea is this giant maneuver space. The sea is how America has traditionally projected power. The sea is essential to global commerce and global security. And so the sea is not going to go away as an important factor. And the sea is rising, so we're getting more of it, unfortunately. That's going to change calculations. So as populations increase in the littoral areas, as the seas rise, you're going to continue to see a need for an amphibious capability. Is it high diddle diddle straight up the middle? I don't think so. You know, the Marine Corps on September whatever, October whatever of 2001, did an amphibious assault from the sea into a landlocked country using aircraft. That could happen again. That doesn't look like waves and waves of ships coming off the Norman coast. But the need for a sea-based power projection from the United States, from our allies, um, is going to remain an issue. Not far from where you're sitting is the South China Sea. There's a lot of little islands there. And a lot of people want those little islands. So how do you get to them? And you have an access question, right? Can I fly over and jump in? I can. Can I swim in, you know, underwater like an NSW team or in a, in a little fast boat? I can. Do I deploy off a Mew? Do I deploy off a light amphibious ship? Once I get there, what do I do? Is it a raid? Is it, you know, am I going in to take out a capability? Am I going in to plant the flag? What are we doing? And and I think the fantasy of a D-Day style invasion is, I, I don't think that exists in, in the professional class. I think that exists in the popular memory. I think that exists in popular discourse. But I don't think when you're talking to professionals that anybody thinks we are going to launch hundreds of thousands of soldiers over a beachhead into Northern Europe again. I think that I think it's going to look very different. And that's part of what we're hoping comes out of this book is that it hasn't traditionally always been, you know, it hasn't always been Normandy. It hasn't always been Iwo Jima. That was, I'm not going to call it the high watermark, but that was... Um, that was one type of an amphibious operation, and that was certainly this grand vision, but it's not the majority of them, and it's not the reality of, of the future in all likelihood. And so what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I concur. I think, um, yeah, Tim's uh, totally right on this. I, I would offer that, um, you know, obviously the amphibious space is still very relevant. It still has strategic value. And, um, you know, in both the Russia and China situations there are examples obviously tim pointed to the the island dispute matter um ukraine or the crimean peninsula is the other example that i was thinking of that um i think obviously has enormous strategic value and i think from a political standpoint we are 
already hamstrung in part because of the the enormous investment we've made in the counterterrorism mission over the last 20 years, we're not in a position to execute or, well, from a political standpoint, I don't think we have the capital um, to justify any kind of sweeping, you know, military maneuvering like that. Um, you know, for, I mean, there are a multitude of reasons, but I think that's the first one that comes to mind. Thinking of how influence across those particular flashpoints is spreading. That's happening in a very irregular, kind, somewhat discreet fashion. It's happening very slowly over time and very quietly. And our response to that, I think, is going to have to be similarly discreet, given, given the situation that we're in, you know, economically, politically, etc. Um, I, I, I don't see a situation where, where we're, we're doing anything that resembles any sort of World War II style assault uh, in the in the near future. Yeah, and it, so in your chapter, you use the example of the South China Sea, which we've touched on briefly, as an area where NSW can be useful for great power competition through things like special reconnaissance and covert intel collection. But you also mention sabotage and capture of maritime a- assets. Obviously, great power competition is below the threshold of war. But in such a sensitive and, I guess, fractious area, some of these begs into question, would it create an issue, if that issue is not already there, in what is perceived as offensive and defensive? Particularly in that area, in the South China Sea, you know, what is one person's defensive manoeuvre is some other person's offensive action against the state. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. No, look, these areas are, are very gray. I mean, I put a, I have a little graphic in my chapter kind of trying to assess. I mean, it's not scientific at all. It's just a sort of going by feel, um, assessing the, the level of, uh, you know, provocativeness of a particular type of action. And, uh, you know, I, I was hoping in the peer review process, people would push back on whether they thought certain types of actions were more provocative or less provocative. Um, I think that that is absolutely a matter of, of perspective and debate. Uh, but I also think that, you know, we have to make some, some calculations about what is the threshold for us? What is, what is acceptable in terms of Chinese provocative action in the South China Sea or, or Russian provocative action in, in um, you know, its own areas of control and what we're willing to, to push back on, right? So, so I think there's a, there's a calculation to be made about what are we willing to, to stand up for and, and, if, and, and to what extent are we willing to put ourselves out there? And if that means doing something that is low visibility, that hopefully um, is, is low risk, but potentially high reward. I think that that's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but but this is by no means uh, a clear. Yeah, I have I have learned over my my experience in the last several years that yeah, offensive and defensive, it's just not that clear cut. I think some very challenging conversations are are, are definitely going to need to be had about this. And uh, I think that we need we need a lot of creativity to tackle some of these problems. And I guess going back to you, Tim, we've discussed a little bit about in the cultural memory, these big amphibious landings are the memories that survive, right? For the Marine Corps training, do you think current Marine Corps training 
is aligned to the other types of amphibious operations that might occur, might occur in naval special warfare and, and things like that. Do you think that's mirrored the, the cultural memory of the public and what the US Marine Corps is training for? Or is the US Marine Corps actually training quite well in a diverse array of scenarios? That's tough for me to answer because I, having been a reservist for so long and bouncing around um, unique mission type units, I know that you know the, the unit that I came from, the unit that Brett's at currently, we're good at what we do. And it doesn't always have to deal with a boat. Yes, naval gunfire is in the name, but <laughs> there's not a lot of naval gunfire assets we have. So we do it through other means. And I think that's, that's a beauty. I, so I, I think back to a story or I think back to an event, right? I'm 17 years old. I'm attending the National Youth Leadership Forum on Diplomacy and Defense and something, right? Like some like high school nerd conference. And they brought in General Jones, who was the commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, right? And I, being this little foreign policy wonk, 17, 16, 17-year-old kid, asked a question because this is the late 90s. Columbia was hot, right? There was a lot of money going into play in Columbia. There was a lot of US involvement. And there was talk that the United States was going to wind up with boots on the ground in Columbia, or we would call it boots on the ground now. I don't remember what it was called then. But I asked General Jones this not just not nosed question, but this kind of question of like, is the Marine Corps prepared to fight in Columbia? And he looked at me and, you know, and he's like six, seven or something. And he's a giant. It was kind of like the way he responded was, was amazing, right? Like obviously the guy's the commandant for the reason, but it was the Marine Corps is trained to adapt. The Marine Corps is trained to respond. The Marine Corps is trained for combat operations. The Marine Corps is ready to fight wherever it needs to fight. And that shut 16, 17-year-old me down. I think at the junior enlisted level, I think at your young company grade officer level, um, your NCOs, your, you know, your young staff NCOs, we're ready to fight. I think as, as, as was said earlier when, when Sue was talking, there is a mind shift or a mindset shift that is going on now among senior officers, right? Brett and I are approaching the twilights of our careers. Um, and I don't think either of us are, are, are in any way thinking we're going to see a star. But we and our peers are the ones that are going to have to shift the idea that we're going back to the boat. And that boat might not be an amphib or, or, or a big deck amphib or, you know, the Mew. But we're going back to sea. And we got to get ready to go back to sea. And I think that mindset shift in talking to my active duty peers is there. They're willing. You know, yes, we're still in Afghanistan. And yes, we're still thinking about that mission set. But we haven't been there in the numbers we have. And so the focus of training has gone back to a more amphibious one. You know, I don't know if at 29 Palms, our big training area out in the California desert, if suddenly there are massive areas that on the map are a lake or, or you know, or the, the sea, or our enemy is no longer, um, you know, kind of a cloned copy of, of the Iraqi army or, an inser- you know, we're not doing um, insurgent, counterinsurgent warfare. I don't know if that's going on at that level, but I do know that intellectually it is being engaged within the, in the professional military education space. Talking to some, to some friends, talking to some folks at, at places like the Krulak Center, I see what our book is, you know, kind of the way it's influencing and, and, and reaching out into the community. So it's going on. The discussions are happening. You know, does that mean the op order for the training exercise has changed? I don't know. But I think, you know, again, I think back to General Jones's statement to me, the Marines are ready to fight. What, what that looks like from a broad conceptual national strategic level, I have to believe that, you know, that this, the, the folks at, at, you know, MARF or PAC and NOPACOM are thinking about these things and writing these scenarios and, and, and preparing us for that. There's an acquisitions piece that has to happen, right? Force Design 2030 has come in uh, under General Berger and we are divesting, right? Like tanks went away, poof, just gone 
overnight. And there was a lot of people that had a lot of heartburn over that. And this is where I wish Brett was here because Brett was in some of those rooms and to the extent that he can talk about it. But when they were wargaming it, like the tanks are great, but they weren't worth, you know, the juice to squeeze ratio. You know, I think back to what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and Sue mentioned this a little bit. You know, we spent a ton of money, a ton of money fighting a counterinsurgency war, right? I'm editing a piece for the place that I work and they're talking about, you know, disruptive innovation. You know, an IED costs $600 and we spent how many billions to develop like big trucks and all you do is just pack another couple of mortar rounds on and we've lost again. Like we have just become heavy as as a defense establishment and that has reduced our agility. That has reduced our ability to respond. And so what General Berger is trying to do with this procurement thing is to take, is to divest the Marine Corps of assets that it has traditionally had that were very useful, right? A tank in Fallujah is very useful. A tank in the Spratly Islands is not that useful. A tank on a light amphibious warship means I can't put much else on there. So it becomes less valuable to me. Do we need all the HMLA, the 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 Cobra squadrons, you know, the attack helicopter squadrons? Do we need as many F-35s? Do we need, and I say this as an artilleryman, do we need this much towed artillery? And I don't think we do. I think you're going to need towed artillery. Uh, you know, you're going to need to be able to suppress and provide smoke and, and, and those missions. But to get there, I still have to get onto the beach. And and so that's where that long range rocket shot that at high Mars. And, and I think the U.S. defense establishment is going to have to start thinking a lot more joint. You know, we we, we talk joint, oh, Goldwater Nichols and, and, and all of these events and these acts. But the Marines had their own battle space in Iraq. Like we lived in our own little bubble out west. Um, yeah, there was NSW and and you know, aircraft, air force aircraft over, overhead and, you know, army psyops teams. Cause the Marine Corps doesn't have psychological operations or didn't at the time. We live in our little bubble. We didn't fight joint to, to address, you know, sorry, I, I I'm, I'm now rambling. <laughs> I'm now rambling, but, um, I, I, I think ultimately the Marine Corps will be ready. There's going to be a procurement piece that is going to lag because again, you, you look at, you know, I think as a taxpayer, I hear the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff come up and, and, you know, I don't know if General Milley's actually said it in these words, but come up and say, oh, our readiness is just killing us. Like, dude, we just put how much money into your budget for the last 20 years and you're telling me you can't fight a war? I'm sorry. I got I got to rebuild this bridge that's collapsing. You know, I got to secure the oil pipelines because the cybersecurity's down. You know, there are all of these competing interests that are going to have to get addressed. And I think that that's where the rub's going to be. The Marine Corps is going to be ready to fight, but how it fights and what it fights with is going to be a different story. You kind of led into my next question there is what, in your view, are the key capabilities that um, the US, as in key Marine Corps slash joint amphibious capabilities that the US needs to start looking at now or that are currently in in the pipeline? We'll start with you, Tim, and then I'll be keen to hear your thoughts as well, Sue. I think the first thing we need to invest in is a smaller a larger fleet in terms of quantity, a smaller fleet in terms of tonnage. So rather than having, right, the USS Bonhomme Richard had a fire back in the fall, they're going to scrap that thing. We have lost a giant amphib ship that has incredible capabilities. But if instead of replacing it with a like copy, I replace it with, say, four light amphibious warships, right, which is, you know, kind of a design coming out of Australia, poof, I've, I've increased my ability to spread. I've increased my ability to spread out enemy reconnaissance assets, ISR assets. I've increased my ability to project power. Right? It's not uh, a 1970s Amtrak coming off the well deck of the back and motoring towards shore, Iwo Jima style. I know a beach. I, can, I know a boat I can put on the beach, and so I can take a squad or a company of Marines and put them on a tiny island somewhere. 
and do that raid, do that evacuation, do that withdrawal, do whatever needs to be done and get back out. It's light. It's, I can hide it easier. I can spread them out, you know, and I, I think harnessing that technology to in the naval service, you know, lighter amphibious warships is one going to help the Navy get to its 600 ship goal or whatever the current number is. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's still 600, you know, they're not all going to be massive battle carriers, you know, that th- those, those are vulnerable, you know, England, what was it? Churchill made some comment about the UK being the world's greatest aircraft carrier, right? Like you can't sink it or the, you know, I could seize landing strips. If I could seize those advanced bases, you can't sink those, but I can, you know, I could find your carrier. I could sink that thing. And I think the Jeep carriers in the second world war were a prime example of this, right? We just produced a ton. We, right. Our, our predecessors produced a ton of relatively easy to manufacture, relatively limited capabilities right? It's the 70% solution. I'm just going to mass produce the 70% solution and out and overwhelm you, be able to over project power on you. I think that's what the U.S. needs to get to uh, when it thinks about joint operational access, when it thinks about joint amphibious operations. It's just the ability to overwhelm, outsmart, outmaneuver, because again, the sea is a giant maneuver space, the enemy. And we can't do that with the, the LHAs and LHDs we have currently. The current the current construct just isn't there. And what do you think, sir? So I'll speak a little bit about NSW specifically, since that's where I'm more comfortable. Um, and I would say I, I echo Tim's sentiments about keeping things light, uh, you know, low footprint, low vis. Um, I, I personally think they should focus a lot on a lot of the non-kinetic uh, skill sets. I mean, I, obviously, all of this is happening in training, but but I think, you know, a, a refocusing and emphasis on things like special reconnaissance, um, infill, exfill, um, you know, sabotage operations, things like that are probably something that we should be thinking about more just because I, I really think, especially when in terms of applying soft skills, the soft skill set to um, the great power competition, I really think that being discreet and being really creative about how we approach this problem is going to be what gives us an advantage. Um, it's It's not you know, it's not direct action raids. It's just not. Um, and the other thing that we really haven't talked about that I, I personally think is, um, you know, something that has a lot of strategic value is building partner capacity. Um, that's another thing that NSW has has been doing for a long, long time. Um, there's a lot of value in supporting partners who are regionally, you know, based. They have a stake in this, in this conflict, in this problem. And um, it's a means of amplifying our own influence, but also enhancing the skills of another, you know, other countries that, you know, will offer us a means of, of addressing this problem without just being, you know, flying in to save the day. And, and, you know, again, I'm thinking of, you know, the Iwo Jima style, uh, you know, type of operation that people, people are thinking of. BPC, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have the same, you know, ring to it. But um, I think that that's one of those long-term investments that brings a lot of reward. And I mean, speaking from the Australian perspective, we have um, the US Marine Corps that rotationally come out to Darwin. And I know that's hugely beneficial for us as well. So uh, I agree with your comments that uh, enhancing that with multiple other regional nations would be a good thing. Okay, well, that um, brings 
us to the final stage of the episode. So that's right, Mariners. For those who are committed listeners, it's time for our Sailors 3. So if you're tuning in for the first time, that's three questions we ask every podcast guest. So we're going to start with Tim today. And uh, here we go. So the three questions, I'll quickly race through them and then we'll ask Tim one by one. So our guests have to tell us their favourite military platform in service or from history and then their most interesting emerging technology, which can be kind of fictitious and a long game or it can be in development right now. And then we have the wild card. So our guests can either make a prediction for the future of military operations or recommend a book to all emerging leaders. So Sailors 3, Tim, for the first question, what is your favourite military platform in service or from history? I'm going to go with the C-47 Dakota transport aircraft. Okay, and tell us why. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the aphorism, right? Professional or amateur study tactics, professors, professional study logisticians, right? I mean, the DC-3 did a ton of work and still continues to do a ton of work for a variety of, uh, of militaries, right? The Berlin Airlift was made possible by the DC-3 or, or the C-47, right? You jump into Normandy, you jump into the islands in the Pacific, C-47. Your first generation gunships in the United States Air Force and, and in South Vietnam, C-47. So you have this incredibly long-lived platform that is still providing service. It's it's in the arsenal or it's in the the inventory of several Latin American nations I know. And I think there's probably one or two African nations that are still flying it in frontline service. On top of which, it's just a beautiful piece of 1930s design. Streamlined. It just, it looks beautiful. <laughs> okay. I'm getting a strong sense of aviation geek here, but um, awesome response to question number two. Most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development, Tim. I am fascinated by the autonomous helicopter as a means for delivering assets. You know, I think back to time in Afghanistan, right, where you needed water, you needed ammo. A Kiowa came in, kicked a speedball out the side, and off it went. And you've put two pilots at risk to to bring me something. Instead, I can send a drone, right? Like, And if Amazon can deliver me my package using a drone, that's pretty awesome. But if I can get something heavier, that's even cooler. So I'm really fascinated by the autonomous helicopter, especially by the fact that, you know, kind of you look at the U.S. designs and then you look at the Chinese design and darn, do they look similar? Um, and yes, aerodynamics is one universal principle, but you know we're not the only people looking at this technology. Oh, interesting. Um, that's very cool. And our final question: the wild card. Are you going to pick a prediction for the future or a book recommendation for our listeners? A prediction for the future. All right, hit me. And that is that. Uh, bogans on jet skis are going to win great power competition for us. So, what did you say? Get ready. <laughs> I said bogans. <laughs> no, okay. um, I didn't know you spoke no, Australian. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I, I, I speak a little bit. I've been there a few times. Um, but yeah, kind of bogans and Randy and Bloody Ripper, and I'm uh, I'm I'm cashed I'm cashed out at that point. Um, but no, I think the the book that I'm reading currently is David Stahill's Retreat from Moscow which is about the Germans in 1941. I'm in the process of editing a, a volume with Walker Mills, uh, who's, you know, those of you on Twitter might know, uh, called Armies in Retreat. And we are looking at what happens when you lose. A lot of the narrative coming out of the U.S. has always has been triumphal. Our track record isn't necessarily that, at least at the beginning of the wars, right? MacArthur flees Corregidor and Bataan and comes to Australia. And it takes four years to fight back north. 
what does it mean to retreat? And I think David Stihel's book is fantastic. And so that's what I'm reading now as a as part of that project. So I'd recommend it. All right. I haven't read it. I'll add it to the list, the growing Goodreads list, which I hope I can fulfill before I die. Um, we now, never will. We never we will never fulfill will. that list. We all know it, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Fills me with panic just thinking about it. Okay, Sue, so we're going to start with you now. What's your favorite military platform in service or from history? Okay, so I had a hard time with this question, uh, but I have a non-traditional answer. Uh, so because I'm interested in history and uh, I like things that are mysterious, I am interested in, I, I realize that there are a number of ancient weapons that are fascinating to me. Um, I'll give a couple examples. Uh, one is Greek fire, if you're familiar with this. It was, uh, yeah, it was Byzantine weapon uh, used in what the seventh century, I believe, employed at na for naval battles. And it was so flammable, it could not be extinguished by water. Um, and I think the game, game of Thrones featured something that looks similar called wildfire. But the cool thing is that to date, we still don't actually know the chemical composition of this, this weapon. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. And the other one I was learning about recently is, uh, something called the Archimedes claw. Uh, if you've heard of this. No, I haven't. It's, what is it? Yeah. It's so invented by Archimedes, the mathematician, um, it is a weapon that uh, is is written about in some ancient texts, of supposedly employed during the Second Punic War uh, to defend against amphibious assault in Syracuse in modern day Sicily. Um, so supposedly he designed some sort of pulley and lever device, a machine that is able to lift ships out of the water so that they are upright and causes them to capsize. And or, uh, you know, lose all of their passengers. Um, and that's another thing that has been referred to in historic texts. But I don't think we have ever seen an example of it actually existing. So it's kind of mysterious and uh, kind of interesting. And there and there are several other examples of of ancient crazy weapons like that. I, I'm just uh, interested in the innovation involved in these sorts of low tech, uh, you know, ways of dealing with pro pro problems that we're still facing today. So, okay, Tim, your answer was cool, but that's my favorite. So it's appealing to the historian in me there. <laughs> that's very interesting. I'm sure it's not the Game of, Thro <laughs> no, the Game of Thrones, Thrones fan? It's definitely Game of Thrones that helped as well, but I know what I'm going to be Googling after this session now. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. So um, the next question is, what's the most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development in your view? Along the lines of you know, adapting against, you know, low tech problems, um, you know, causing bigger issues. I, I'm very interested to see if we ever actually come out with an effective, a cost effective counter UAV weapon. Again, as a melee specialist, uh, I have seen, uh, you know, insurgent groups, non-state actors employ $200 commercial off the shelf drones you can buy from Amazon and create absolute havoc. Right now, a popular defense against uh, some weaponized uh, unmanned aerial systems is the $3 million Patriot. There has to be there has to be something better. I know that there are some things on the market that are being offered, but I, I have not seen something that is going to really do 
the job that we need. Um, and it just goes back to Tim's point about it's incredible. You don't you don't need a lot to to have a really you know to still have a big impact. Someone can figure this out. Yeah, yeah. If someone can figure that out, just uh, drop us a line. We'd, we'd like we'd like to hear your uh, yeah. <laughs> your idea. And for the wild card, Sue, would you like to make a prediction or recommend a book? Sure, I'll, I'll make a prediction. So um, again, my bias is showing here, but but I would say I think when we talk about things like the Great Power Competition, Strategic Competition, especially at the institutional level, I think it's really important not to overcorrect for this. I, I completely understand the need to shift and divert resources to posture ourselves against a strategic problem. I, I totally respect that. But I will say there are already historical examples in the last 10, 15 years of us trying to to overcorrect and then being thwarted by you know immediate emergencies. Examples um, are during the Obama administration, they had the pivot to Asia. And during that time, we had... Uh, Benghazi, and we had the rise of ISIS. Um, and, you know, I think that we just need to take care, we have to figure out how to how to walk and chew gum, as they say. It's going to be difficult. It's going to require doing more with less. Uh, but but we, we really need to think about it in those terms, instead of trying to, to make everyone prove that they are supporting the great power competition when I don't think everyone has to. I think most of us do, but some people need to keep you know, their eye on some of these other problems that may take advantage of the fact that we're distracted. So um, I think if we're not careful, we're going to see you know, things like ISIS, AQAP, ISIS, Khorasan, et cetera. Like those kinds of things can bubble up again, especially if we let our guard down. So there has to be a way of balancing all of these threats at the same time. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it can be very easy for different um, departments or defence industri- industry to catch onto the, the sexy topic train and then go completely down that avenue and then we can get caught with our pants down. I know from the Australian perspective, we recently announced that we have pulled out of anti-piracy type um, maritime operations in the Middle East and, you know, all of our foreign policy white papers and things like that have a complete turn towards the near region, which for us is Asia. But then, you know, you don't know what is going to happen in the future and have we potentially lost our foothold and all the logistical support that is available there, that that kind of conversation is happening. All right, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Tim and Sue, for joining me on Jeanne Cole today. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you for listening to Jeanne Cole Pod. Stay in contact with us via Jeanne Cole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeannecole.com.